Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is Beyond Therapy. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry. Today's topic is a sensitive one. And we want our listeners to be aware that we will be discussing some sexual content. So this may be triggering for some members of our audience. We're going to be talking about working with inappropriate client behaviors, which my guess is most, if not all of us, have experienced at one time or another. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're actually going to get rolling with a story from a neuropsychiatry trained physician's assistant who recently shared her experience of a client who engaged in some really unexpected, uh, inappropriate sexual behaviors that she reached out to a local listserv to seek support. So we're going to hear her story first, and then we're going to get to our primary guest today, Amber Margaretten, who I'll introduce in just a moment. But first, let's hear from our physician's assistant. Just tell me a little bit about your practice and where you're working, who you work with, what you do. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I've been a physician assistant since 2009. I started out in primary care um, and then in 2013 transitioned to working in psychiatry. Um, I'd always been interested in mental health since you see it a lot in primary, but um, I kind of happened into it. I was looking for a new job and there was a call for a neuropsychiatry practice. So I took a chance and did that. I loved it. And then I've just continued in that field since. Um, right now I work for a, um, a private multi-practice, uh, psychiatric clinic, um, or clinic organization, um, that's based in North Carolina. Um, and I've been there for about seven years. We saw very complicated, um, you know, patients, a lot of genetic disorders, um, I've, and, and a lot of disadvantaged populations, which is still, you know, kind of the demographic of who I prefer to work with. So, um, in today's episode, we'll be talking with, um, Amber Margaretten, who, um, has worked a lot with folks who have, um, experienced, um, a lot of different traumas, have a lot of different presenting issues, and who demonstrate quite a few uh, inappropriate sexual behaviors. Um, so I thought it would be great to get another person's insight uh, who does work in a more community-based setting. So she's she talks a lot about more inpatient settings and prison settings uh, and ran into you on the Triangle Listserv because you were reaching out for some support. I wonder if you can just kind of give us the uh, general idea of what you experienced. Sure. Um, so I had a patient, um, who I'd been seeing for a few years. Um, I was treating him for mild depression, some generalized anxiety disorder and ADHD. Um, he is, he is in his late thirties or early forties. So, you know, when the pandemic came around, we pivoted to starting to see many of our patients virtually, and some of them chose to continue that even when restrictions um, rolled back. 
and he lived at a distance. So he was one of them. Um, so at our, what became our last visit, um, I logged onto our appointment. Um, he was already on the appointment when I logged in and, um, the first thing I immediately saw is that he appeared to be standing in front of the camera with the camera pointed at his groin. Um, he was not wearing clothes in that area and he was actively masturbating. Um, I was needless to say, um, shocked. I immediately disconnected the call. I should, I should actually roll back and say very quickly that when I first logged on, he was there. And at that point, the camera was pointed, but it was a little ambiguous what was going on. And I said his name and he didn't respond. And then a second later was when I saw what, what I said that I saw. Um, so I logged off. Um, I didn't know what to do. Of course, my mind was whirling. I couldn't believe that that had just happened. And um, I kind of just sat with that for a little bit. And then I was just flooded by feelings of, you know, just um, sadness, anger, um, demoralization. And I kind of immediately swung into action because I didn't, you know, I'd never had anything like that happen before. None of my colleagues had ever talked about anything like that happen before. I immediately contacted um, the uh the legal department of the telehealth platform and was told that there was nothing that they could do to help. Um, I contacted my management at work and they said there was nothing they could do other than send a discharge letter to the patient, um, citing inappropriate behavior. And that was really surprising to me. And I think I felt equally harmed by the fact that nothing could be done and that there was so little support in addition to simply witnessing the patient doing this. And in my belief, it was purposeful and fully intended for me to see it. There did not appear to be anything incidental about it. And I find it so troubling because after this, after I got this feedback, I went online and started researching and it truly appears that there is little to no recourse for this kind of situation. Had he been sitting in the room with me, it could have been reported as, you know, as a sexual crime. Um, but because it was virtual, there is nothing you can do. And not that I necessarily wanted to seek some kind of legal, you know, action, but just to know that there was nothing that I could do was so profoundly disturbing to me. Yeah. I mean, it, I hear you just like you, you say that, you know, you weren't necessarily seeking some sort of punishment necessarily, but, um, some form of protection, you know, that beyond just discharging, I'm curious if the folks that you reported this to, um, if they offered you any particular kind of support beyond just, we'll send them a letter. None whatsoever. Um, it literally was as though nothing had happened. And fortunately, the incident happened 
right before the weekend. So I had time to go home and kind of process the best I could what had happened. But, you know, had I had it not been the weekend, I don't think I would have wanted to come to work the next day. Um, and now that I look back, it's been about five months. Um, I probably should have gone and sought some kind of counseling. Um, because what I experienced felt like a sexual assault. And it was made all the more profound by the fact that this was a patient that I had spent a lot of time with talking to about his deepest feelings, about the trouble he had with his long-term girlfriend and his mother. And I felt, you know, I felt that I had been able to play a role in him finding a better sense of balance and wellness in his life. And though we can speculate psychoanalytically why he would then choose to do that to me, regardless of that, um, it just felt so bad that, you know, this person with whom I felt I had a therapeutic rapport chose to do that. I have to say that this has been so much on my heart and mind recently. And it's something that I feel is so taboo in some circles to talk about. And I'm just going to put it out there that um, I had a situation several years ago where a patient was stalking me and I went to my supervisor at the time and he told me that I should deal with it because it was, I will quote, grist for the mill of my practice, that I should endure what was happening because it would help me become a better provider and a deeper, more compassionate person. And I, at the time, believed him and I did so until it became untenable to the point it was the harassment was inter interrupting other patient care and my personal life. But, you know, I have gotten this before and even from management where I work, I have gotten this feedback that, oh, well, they have mental health problems. Whatever they do, you should kind of roll with it. If you absolutely need to discharge them, you can. And I've been in these situations over the past several years where I've had patients threaten to shoot me. Um, I've had patients tell me that I'm fat and ugly and point out other things about my appearance they don't like. Um, and I know this happens to other people. Um, and there have been incidents, of course, of like sexual harassment and, um, you know, insinuation and um, kind of angling for a romantic relationship. And again, what do we do in those situations? I feel like there's so much pressure to be, quote unquote, therapeutic and so little guidance around when when is enough? When can we say this is this is not your mental illness talking? This is a choice that you are making. And I don't want to be part of that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I was having a conversation with, I think it was a supervisee um, about sort of the expectations that people have of providers. And I think especially counseling is a predominantly female identified field. 
And I was saying that, like, I think if counseling had a gender, it would be female because the expectations of the relationship are that we sacrifice, are that we not have boundaries, are that we just so therapeutic becomes synonymous with, you know, accept all behavior, you know, and that is just not reasonable. It's not sustainable for providers uh, and it's not helpful for clients to think they can just get away with stuff. It's not helpful. And that's something that I've really come to understand is that it's a kindness when we set boundaries with people and it doesn't matter what they're going through personally or in their mental or physical health. We all benefit when somebody sets a limit. It gives us an opportunity to learn about our own behavior and our own, the, our way that we relate to other people. If we continuously allow people to be abusive, then what are they doing, you know, in our office? What are they doing in their personal life? What are they, what lesson are they losing out on? And I, I'm, I don't want to see, I'm not trying to insinuate our patients are our children and we need to help them learn the way we would our own. But, you know, we are, we are, you know, even the language around who we are has changed, right? Like care provider, caregiver. And it, it does, it almost names us as this limitless font of compassion and healing and, you know, this sense that we'll be there for you no matter what. And technology has abetted that to some extent. You know, I do know therapists and even psychiatrists who will give their text, um, give their cell phone number to patients who can text them at all hours. Um, even at our practice, we have a 24-7 call line where anybody can call at any time which means that people can call at two o'clock in the morning and say, I don't know when my appointment time is. Can you look it up for me? I think it also speaks to just the, how warped our work gets by the capitalistic aspect of it. You know, when we have to treat our clients as customers, I mean, it just, it, really damages the work what's it i think it it narrows what's available to us to use as a teaching tool as a therapeutic strategy because if it doesn't feel good to the person then it's not okay well i want to um pivot a little bit to um the sort of feedback that you got when you did reach out to a local listserv for other mental health providers i'm curious uh, what was the range in terms of helpful and not helpful? Because my guess is you got some maybe pretty activated responses. I did. Um, I I was largely so relieved and and really like almost joyous um, around the responses I got. It, there was so much support and so much kindness and understanding. And and some people, you know, simply said, you know. I don't know what to do either, but I'm just so sorry that happened. And it meant so much because, you know, I told a couple people in my personal life about what had happened, but unless you're in this kind of work, I think it's difficult to entirely understand how devastating it feels. And I really, as I said, I didn't get a lot of support at work um, myself. I will tell you that I only had one response that I found utterly disheartening and disagreeable in which the person um, told me that 
there was no reason for me to feel traumatized that I was choosing to feel traumatized about the incident and that all I needed to do was forget about it and move on. But hey, if that's one response out of 25 or 30, we're doing okay. What has helped you, if anything, um, to integrate that experience, to um, move through with it, however you conceptualize kind of when bad things happen? Yeah, well, um, I'm a poet in addition to my mental health work. So I was able to write about the incident. Um, I did write a poem. I'm not sure that I will ever publish it. Um, but I did read it at an open mic that I run and um, got really supportive feedback from the audience there. And I did eventually um, talk to a counselor about what had happened, um, talk to a therapist about what had happened, which was really helpful as well. So I did ultimately take care of myself. Um, it just happened a little more gradually than I wish it had. I think Really, the takeaway for me is if there had been more support to begin with. And the other thing I found so troubling is that there was there is no protocol at my workplace around what to do in any kind of patient abuse situation. And after it happened, I asked, you know, the company whether they would be willing to, you know, to do something like that. And they said they would think about it and then it was just completely dropped. So I find that troubling that, you know, we have to come together to protect our community as therapists and other mental health providers. Um, we have to have, even if we have no legal recourse, we have to have some kind of understanding of what do we do in this situation? What will we do the next time something like this happens. So I'm hoping that, you know, especially as telehealth is not going to go away, I'm hoping that more kind of understanding policy procedure can be put in place just to help folks, you know, navigate the aftermath. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to share your story. I know it's probably not super pleasant to revisit when you've tried to, you know, kind of put it away. But I think this is just going to be so helpful to hear um, and so validating for so many people, I'm sure, who have had these experiences and maybe didn't feel like there was anybody to tell. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to just, you know, hopefully be part of the, the healing for all of us. So now let's hear from our primary guest, Amber Margaretten, and learn a little bit about her experience working in prisons and in nursing home populations and her approaches to managing inappropriate client behaviors. Amber is a licensed psychological associate and is licensed to practice psychology in North Carolina. She went to Appalachian State University and North Carolina State University for her undergraduate degree in psychology and obtained her master's in clinical psychology from North Carolina Central University. Amber has been in the mental health field for about nine years. Much of her work as a psychological associate was in various prisons, performing individual therapy, group therapy, and psychological assessments, where she worked with all custody levels from minimum custody to death row. She supervised all mental health services and staff at her last facility and developed their treatment program. Other areas of experience include geriatrics, chronic pain, psychoeducational evaluations, 
working in group home settings, providing critical incident care to first responders, and providing affirming care to diverse populations. Thank you so much for being here, Amber. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, and I shared with you kind of in our, our first meeting that really one of the reasons that I got super interested in this was because of a very recent supervision situation in which a client um, was using a lot of sexual language uh, and the counselor was just caught completely off guard um, and very uncomfortable. And what I realized is that there are so many different feelings and approaches and judgments, like it activates so much from just for me personally. Absolutely. Yeah. To even think about how to offer guidance, you know, there's the shared female identity aspect, you know, trauma histories, all these different things come into play. So I'm so glad to have someone who has, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of experience with inappropriate client right. encounters. Right. So maybe to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about how you decided to focus on working uh, in prison populations? Sure. Um, I was actually doing like CNA type work after I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and realized I have to keep going if I want to use my degree. So while I was getting my master's, I was searching for job opportunities where I could utilize my psychology degree. And I noticed there were openings in the prison. And I know this was a really underserved population. So I was really excited. Um, I know that I can't change the social justice system by myself, but I was like, maybe I can help from within. Mm -hmm. And so I took a chance and kind of hopped right in and just went straight for the prison system. And my first job was actually in a diagnostic center where I was administering um, intelligence and achievement tests to people who were just processing into prison. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you went in with at least some amount of clarity around, um, you know, this is a group that is very underserved, that, you know, there's so many intersecting identities and points of oppression for these folks. Yes. Um, I'm curious, though, what sort of biases or preconceived notions did you maybe have going into this work? Right. I mean, you know, if you've never worked in a prison, all we have is what we see on TV or in the movies. So I had this like hardened criminal thought, you know, I'm going to be working with all these hardened criminals. And um, I was also really scared walking in the first day, um, just just scared for my safety. That's how I was feeling. And I do want to say, if you ever walk into a prison and you're not scared, you're in the wrong place. You always should have a sort of like hyper awareness about you. Um, but not everybody is there to harm you. So I, I think that was my definitely a bias is that, that I was that I was just always in danger or would be in danger working in a facility. Wow, that feels like such a a relevant thing, especially, you know, again, I'm kind of connecting most with my own female identity mm -hmm. um, and you know, just all the conditioning that I've had around. You're supposed to be afraid of men. You're definitely supposed to be afraid of men of color. Um, and then knowing that prisons are obviously, you know, this space that, you know, one of the primary ways that men of color are oppressed is through mass incarceration. So sure. it's just so interesting how um, to balance that awareness that not everyone is going to harm you with the, 
awareness that you do still have to be on your guard? Like, was that ever a challenge for you to balance? It was. Um, but, you know, the more you work there, the more comfortable you get. You meet so many different people. And most of the people you meet are nonviolent. They're just like us. They're going to get out. They're going to be our neighbors. They're going to shop at our grocery stores. They're going to pump gas right beside us. You know, they made a bad decision and that resulted in a felony and them having to serve time. Mm-hmm. So I think once I realized that, while wow, not everyone's doing 25 to life for some sort of very violent crime. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of us forget that most people who go to prison are there for a felony, but not necessarily a violent felony. Right. Lots of drug offenses, things like that. The more I got used to working with people and hearing their stories, you know, you see them as a person and less of I call it the F word felon. You work out in, you know, out in the public with us. Right. Give them a chance for a job. This is going to reduce rates for recidivism. But we see that F word and kind of shy away. Did your time, your time in prison system, <laughs> when you were doing your time? Sure, did, yeah. Um, did it change how you uh, engaged with folks on the outside at all? It did, um, because of course I did hear awful things, right? And you hear what people are capable of doing to another person. So it does you know, reality kind of sets in that these things do happen. Um, so I do feel like I did develop a sort of hyper awareness um, in the facility and outside of the facility. Yeah, it's interesting because in trying to do a little research ahead of our talk, that was one of the things that showed up as one of the primary impacts for counselors um, who are working either in a prison system or in any sort of like uh uh, offender recovery sort of program. Um, interestingly, I only found one article that considered any aspect of the counselor's own identity, and it only stratified by gender and only the binary. Um, but just as you said, the female identified folks in that study were much more vigilant, um, you know, in their daily lives. And interestingly, the men um, felt like a sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. for their male identity, you know, feeling like, okay, this is something that female identified folks are going to feel threatened by. It's just my maleness. So, uh, but yeah, not a lot of information on how counselors and therapists are impacted based on who they are. Yeah. Well, if someone's out there listening that wants to do a research study, it sounds like that's a good opportunity. Right. It won't be me. I don't like the numbers, but uh, you happen to have more experience with inappropriate behavior, not as a function of working in the prisons, but as a function of working with a very specific population of sex offenders in the prison. Correct. Okay. I'm curious if we just sort of set the um, a baseline of what sorts of behaviors or comments what do you really consider to be inappropriate sexual behavior based on your experience? Sure. Based on my experience, an inappropriate sexual behavior, it could be sexual verbal remarks. It could be unwanted touches or any type of unwanted physical contact. Any kind of comment that you perceive to be sexual or inappropriate, you know, in your session 
even if it's not necessarily sexual in content, even if it's said with body language could be inappropriate. I think that's important to highlight. Um, anything you would consider to be a boundary crossing um, in a sexual nature. The North Carolina general statute identifies sexual contact, you know, as specifically like touching of any sexual organs, anus, breast, groin, buttocks, or touching someone with any of those sexual organs. And then it also includes like, you know, ejaculating in front of someone as well um, as sexual contact. So it sounds like um, you were able to sort of define based not just on behavior specific, like overt, everyone would agree that was crossing a boundary, but that you also really bring in, how did I feel about that encounter? Is that anything that you ever struggled with at all? Because I just, I know that um, in interacting with supervisees and also just my own personal experience, there can be so much second guessing of whether or not that actually was inappropriate, this concern for like not wanting to shame the client, not wanting to damage the relationship. So how did you kind of get so um, confident, I guess, in knowing where your own boundaries were and then really holding those firmly? Absolutely. Um, you know, as therapists, our job you know, is to help the client, right? And if a client is behaving in a way that can be perceived as inappropriate, I think it's important to let them know that. Even if they don't realize they're doing that, that's going to help them, right? Um, I mean, if I think about my time in the prison, you know, if one of my male or female clients made me feel uncomfortable, I would bring that up and you discuss that with them, you know, hey, you could lose your job over this. And that's absolutely relevant to real life situations as well. If you behave like this towards someone or say the things with the body language where you said that to me, you know, you could get a, you know, sent to HR for sexual harassment. Right. So I think that it was just important to get comfortable enough with bringing it up to the client and talking it through with them. That's interesting because it it brings to mind kind of another dilemma because it sounds sure. like your approach was really almost psychoeducational, right? Yes. Like you just did this thing and here's how this thing could impact you negatively. Something that I, I would get hung up on is just my own judgment that this person already knows that's inappropriate and they're choosing to do it anyway. Sure. So I don't, does that factor in at all to how you approach or is that even relevant because we don't know what people know or don't know? Right. No, I mean, it, uh, it it's absolutely relevant. You know, when you're working with someone who is a sexual predator and they're doing that, if you do that behavior again, I'm going to terminate therapy. It's mm -hmm. very different in a prison setting, right, than in, you know, an outpatient therapy setting. If someone does something inappropriate, you know. I'd be shocked, but I think it's still important to be firm and set those boundaries. That's inappropriate, and I'm not going to tolerate that going forward. I just want to clear the air. We're going to handle it differently if it's someone who's in a psychotic state, right, or a manic state, or if the patient has dementia or a TBI where they're not necessarily always in control of their impulses or decision-making. Um, and then when someone is in control of those impulses and decision-making, yeah, it can make us feel some type of way, right, if they're doing it on purpose. So I think that's when 
your judgment as a therapist comes in, knowing your patient, knowing their background, and also knowing your limits and what you will and will not accept. Um, And if you're able to move forward, I think that's important to think about. If you leave a therapy session feeling very uncomfortable, um, maybe feeling some resentment or anger toward a client, then I think it's going to be important for you to have a termination session with the client and refer out because it is our job and part of our ethics code to do no harm. So if we're having feelings like that toward a client because of how they behave toward us in a session, it would be our duty to refer out and explain why, explain to them, you know, why we're doing this and what happened, what caused that. Yeah, that that feels just so important to really name is that one, it it is okay and it's unavoidable that certain client behaviors um, are going to activate us in some kind of way. Sure. And to take ownership of that and how that could impact the relationship and the client's own personal development and growth within therapy. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's another thing that shows up, I think, around that is this training, at least that maybe it's more implicit than explicit in counseling and my guess is it's pretty consistent too in uh, psychology training is this, the therapist is really supposed to be this blank slate, this holding space, uh, this empty cup, whatever, Sure, and isn't supposed to actually have human reactions. We're not supposed Um, to have feelings. Yeah. Which is, so then we're, we're, you know, not prepared for when that inevitably happens. And I think what I see in a lot of supervisees is this judgment that I must be doing it wrong if I'm having any kind of feelings. And then those feelings are not trusted. They're not acted on. And so they stay in a a counseling relationship longer than is good for anybody. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, One thing that came through my mind when you brought that up is it's not your fault as a counselor if something like this happens. Um, You know, we're assuming that everyone listening is ethical, right? They are setting appropriate boundaries. So, (laughs) you know, it's not your fault if something like this happens. You cannot control someone else's behavior. Um, It's the client that's on the client, right? So I do think that's important to understand. And you also brought up, you know, a supervisee relationship. Um, I don't ever remember being taught or, you know, even in school, right, or in any kind of supervision, that this is even a possibility of something happening with a client, mm-hmm. right? We're taught all these different treatment modalities, but I don't ever remember, um, you know, it even being said that, you know, over half, I believe I saw a study, it was over half of people who identified as female psychologists said that they had experienced an inappropriate or a sexually inappropriate client. Wow. And I don't know, why isn't this being discussed, right? Yeah. Yeah. But back to the point, we are human. We're not robots. Um, And we're all going to react differently. And that's okay. From my experience, um, I believe the way you react to each client is important. 
So with my experience working in the prison system with someone who's a sexual predator, they might not be able to actually physically harm me or physically assault me in any way. But if they do something so grotesque in a therapy session and I give them this facial reaction of horror and disgust, that's all they need to get off. Right. Mm. So I had to train myself to be that robot in prison. Right. Why are you doing that? This is therapy. Like, let's keep going. Right. Or if you do that again, it's done. Very firm. Right. Almost like a motherly role, a motherly tone. Mm -hmm. They were very, um, they were very responsive to that. In my nursing home settings, you know, I've worked in nursing homes over the past year. If someone with a TBI or with dementia is sexually inappropriate, which is frequently, right? They're, they're losing control of their impulses. Um, you know, you're handling that differently. And that is more redirecting. And they, people with dementia, they do better with body language. That's not appropriate. And I know the listeners can't see me, but I'm kind of like shaking my finger. That's not appropriate, right? We don't do that. And then you're going to redirect them to an activity, right? Get their hands moving, give them a fidget toy, a teddy bear, you know, get them painting, doing art, keep them busy. Because even though they have dementia, at the end of the day, they're still a person and they're going to have those human urges, right? But if you can keep someone busy and occupied, um, they're going to be least likely to, you know, resort to those types of behaviors. Wow. Well, I mean, I feel like you've already named multiple ways of potentially responding effectively, depending on kind of the origin of the behavior. You know, you've talked about psychoeducation. Hey, this behavior is not going to fly outside. Mm -hmm. Um, You've talked about just physical redirection, awareness of body language for folks who are maybe cognitively impaired in some way. And then this totally different approach, which is to be aware of the sort of secondary gain of, uh, you know, particularly if someone is, you know, has a history of sexual, I don't know if deviance is really the right word anymore, but sexual predation, you know, don't give them the response that they're looking for, which is the disgust, which is the natural uh, kind of reaction that we might have. Right. Um, So that's super helpful. And I want to get into some of the uh, more specific strategies uh, in just a bit as well. Sure. So I feel like you've already kind of spoken to this, but it seems like there would be a difference between how I might handle uh, inappropriate behavior when I'm working with someone that I'm expecting that behavior from. Right. Versus someone that it's just out of the blue. You know, here's this client who's come in. I've been working with them for maybe six months, eight months on managing their panic attacks. And all of a sudden there's this very sort of overt you know, sexual behavior, or maybe it's not overt, maybe it's that sort of implied where it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to take that. Um, So was that the case for you? Did it feel different? Did you respond differently? Prepare differently? When you knew that it was likely that you were going to experience some inappropriate behaviors? Yes, you know, you're more prepared. And the more experience I had working in a prison system, um, you know, it just gave me that experience. Like, I'm not perfect. I absolutely had those experiences where I had that shocked reaction, didn't really know what to do, froze up, you know, 
probably everything you can think of, right? And then the same thing when I started working in the nursing home, it was, you know, sexually inappropriate behaviors and that I thought I knew how to handle, but this is a different population and you can't handle it the same way. Um, and then as well as with outpatient therapy, like you said, we're not always going to know when a client has, you know, is experiencing transference towards us. Like we might not always know that, might not be obvious until they make that sexually inappropriate comment. Right. Or it could even be like leaning back, spreading legs open. Right. Inappropriate. You know, how do we how do we respond in that situation? And again, we're all going to respond differently. And that's OK. Um, I do still think that my personal approach would be bringing attention to that. Right. The way you're sitting is making me feel uncomfortable. So if you could sit up a little bit and we can continue with therapy and then just kind of acts like nothing happened if you're okay with doing that. Um, if it's obviously a more overt, if they are exposing themselves to you, I think terminating therapy, not I think terminating therapy at that point, not necessarily in general, but the session. Um, this is unacceptable. I'm ending session because of this act. And I'm going to think about if we're going to continue moving forward together in this client therapist relationship. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think that's a, a personal choice if you do continue to move on. Yeah. I'm thinking, thankfully, I have never had such an overt um, experience as like someone exposing themselves. But I almost think that that while that would certainly be more jarring, I mm -hmm. would also feel more confident, I think, in however I chose to respond to that because sure. it was it would have been so blatant. What I notice is as you're describing the client who, you know, just kind of leans leans back and spreads their legs is that I, when I think about saying, you know, that makes me uncomfortable. Can you sit up? I'm also anticipating being gaslit about that. Right. You know, I'm anticipating that client being like, really, why would that bother you? Mm -hmm. And, and then I'm starting to feel, uh, like the spotlight is on me. I'm starting to feel very nervous. So um, has that happened to you at all where someone challenged that like, oh, this must be a you thing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I would just kind of turn it back like, oh, well, we're not here to talk about me, right? We're just going to keep going and just kind of redirect. Um, you could always, you know, go, well, this is a professional relationship and, you know, our body language needs to reflect that. Um, you know, and then back to that psychoeducation. If you did that in a in the middle of a, a work meeting, right? Would you do that in the middle of a work meeting? Ooh, that's a good you one. You know, something like that to apply it to real life because sometimes people think they can behave differently, <laughs> you know, when they come into our office. Um, and the laws still apply, whether you're in therapy or not. So I think that's important that the patient understands that too, or your client. Mm, I'm also realizing that my assumption that I'm going to be gaslit by a client is that feels like my stuff. <laughs> like, why would you just assume that no one is going to actually respect your boundary? Right, right. Yeah. And also, you know, probably useful to be aware that that could happen. But mm -hmm. I mean, just like you said, it's you can you can still hold that boundary. And, Absolutely. In a lot of different ways. Absolutely. So. um I want to turn toward uh, some other experiences that I was reading about. So I mentioned that I got interested in this because of um, an interaction with I mean, multiple supervisees, but you know, there was a fairly recent one um, in 
looking up information online, because there was not a ton of actual research that I was able to find that was really identity based, um, I just started looking at some personal stories. Sure. And um, there was one story from a psychologist who was working in an adolescent sexual offender facility. Um, and one of her clients in, engaged in very overt, inappropriate touch, grabbed her breasts, and then just kind of went about his day. Um, and so she said, and this is her quote, I struggled to make sense of what had happened and how to understand its meaning for both my client and for me personally. Some said that I should have physically defended myself. Others commended me on the way I handled it. And she addressed it directly with the client and then had the adolescent also go explain what had happened to a staff member with her present. Uh, so according to Maryland law, my client had engaged in an unlawful sexual act. But what implications did that have? At first, I downplayed the significance of the event. Perhaps I had been desensitized from working in sexual offense specific therapy settings. Or perhaps I was determined to demonstrate empathy for my client's history and cognitive abilities. I struggled in taking on the role of a victim over maintaining my role as his therapist. I wanted to be ethical and professional, but I didn't know what that meant in this context. That really, that use of yeah. the word victim versus therapist felt so poignant to me. Does that confusion feel familiar to you at all? It absolutely does. Um, there is one instance that comes to mind, and I was very, very pregnant working at a men's facility. And this particular men's facility um, was a 25 to life facility. So those are offenders, you know, who were convicted of 25 to life. And so I was about eight months pregnant, very obviously showing. Um, I was doing restrictive housing rounds, which is where you go to restrictive housing. And restrictive housing is where if a person who's incarcerated breaks the rules inside prison, then, you know, they go, most people know it as solitary confinement, right? So we call it restrictive housing now. And mental health, you have to do rounds every so often. Um, you know, you're checking in on people, making sure they're okay, because not everybody in there is on the mental health caseload. You're giving them the opportunity to to speak to someone, because that's, to me, restrictive housing is a traumatic experience in itself. So I was doing rounds actually because their regular therapist wasn't there. And one of the guys came to the door and he was like, yes, doc, please. They, they all call you doc, whether you have a doctor or not. I have my master's. Um, so I went up to the door and he was really engaging with me. And I was like, wow, this guy's really engaging. We were talking and he was being really vulnerable. And in restrictive housing, you can hear what everyone says. Because you can just look out your window of your room and see the other people's rooms. So everyone's seeing that he's talking to mental health. And in the men's prison, that's a little different than women's prison. Um, and then I realized I saw his body shaking and I couldn't see his hands. And then he you know, started getting out of breath. And I realized that he was masturbating while he was talking to me. And of course, like my face, I looked shocked. I immediately turned my back and put my back against the wall um, between the two doors where he couldn't see me. And honestly, I don't even remember what I said to him, but I just walked off the unit. Um, and I remember feeling very 
hurt by that because I was trying to help someone and he was keeping me there for another reason. Mm. He did not want my help. He, he, I, I don't know. I'm almost lost for words still thinking about this, but it was very predatory what he did to me. And I, I went through all the feelings after it. Um, and you can tell I'm still having a hard time talking about it. I felt angry. I felt disrespected. I wanted to get revenge. I mean, and I feel embarrassed saying that. Like I wanted, like, I'm going to go write him up where he can stay in there longer. You know, I went through all of those feelings. So when you read her story, I'm absolutely understanding that um, it is a little different because this person wasn't necessarily my patient that I had rapport with. Um, but I do felt like at that facility, I had built up rapport with a lot of the offenders, you know, the other guys on the unit knew me. Um, once the feelings had kind of calmed down, then I did battle with, if I write this person up for that, they could face additional charges, like not just for restrictive housing, Mm -hmm. but additional time in prison. And I was really torn. I was really torn. This is really just a logistical question. I mean, sure. first, it's name. Like, I really appreciate you sharing this story. And yes, I mean, I'm just, I'm connecting with how vulnerable you were in that moment. Um, and also uh, connecting with being pregnant and experiencing that. Yes. I mean, it's like vulnerability and concerns for safety, at least for me, were just off the charts, you know, when pregnant in ways that I had never experienced prior. Right. Um. So... I think that's just so helpful to hear, you know, what that really feels like out loud, you know, um, as you were thinking about whether or not to report this, it, if someone is already in prison and someone reports basically another illegal act within the prison, does that go back through the whole justice system or is it just this sort of like, well, they're already here, just give them another couple of years because that was not cool. How does That's that a good work? question. Yeah, technically um, it does. And most people just go, yeah, I did that. And then it gets tacked on. Sometimes it doesn't get tacked on and they'll just run it, um, you know, with their current sentence. So they might not even get additional time, but it will be on the record. Mm-hmm. But it technically does go back through the justice system where if they chose to have a you know, trial jury, you know, they could mm-hmm. absolutely do that. Which means then you would also... M- likely be thinking about, do I want to disclose this in a court of law? Yes. Do I want to be re-traumatized, which is, you know, what so many folks who survive sexual assault decide it's just not worth it to be, yes. you know, put through that whole process. Yes. And I know kind of behind the scenes, we had talked a little bit about, you know, supervisor experiences, but after this experience, I did speak with lots of supervisors and coworkers how I was feeling, what are some different ways I could handle this. Um, and ultimately, I did decide to not seek charges outside, but a write up because I didn't want him to continue this behavior with any staff, right? There are consequences to your actions. Um, And I reported it to a male staff and they said, because I did not see his penis that I could not write it up, but we're all adults and we know what masturbation looks like, whether we see a penis or not. 
the lights were off in his room, but he's also standing against a door, right? So I'm not going to see his penis. That's, you know, it's below the window. So that's what happened. Um, I feel like maybe if I would have went to a female and reported it, things would have been different. Mm. So that was kind of, I felt like a lesson learned for me there as well. Wow. Which is, I think, just a whole other layer to look at, which is, sure, I don't know the demographic breakdown of employees in the prison, but in your personal experience, were you one of very few female identified folks? Okay. In, in that prison, yes. Okay. There were more men. Um, now, when I worked at the women's prison, it was different. I felt like there were not, I felt like there were a lot more female staff working at the women's prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, were there other instances where you feel like your concerns weren't really taken seriously as a function of your gender identity? It's a good question. Um, Yes and no. I at times I felt like people were almost overprotective, which was insulting. Where I'm like, I feel like mm. I can handle my own, right? Uh-huh. And then you had the other end where people are like, "You're blowing this out of proportion." Yeah. But don't get me wrong; I absolutely had some awesome supervisors, and there are plenty of awesome people that worked there that you know would take us seriously. Most folks that I work with have had some combination of positive and really negative supervisory experiences. And I'm not going to ask you to name names or anything, sure. but I'm curious if you've, if you've had a mix yourself. I have, um, there have been supervisors where I, you know, wouldn't have felt comfortable bringing that up, right. Even mentioning that. Um, and then there are other supervisors where if they found out, you know, they're like, why didn't you tell me that? Right. I, I could have helped you. So thinking about myself in a supervisory role, I absolutely want to be the latter that I described and build an open relationship with anybody I'm supervising. You can let me know anything that happens, right? That's what I'm here for. We can work through it together. Um, I think that is important. Well, and going back to what you said that I think is so true that our graduate programs never even acknowledged that this was a possibility. It seems just so powerful to on the front end say, Hey, if anything, you know, if you ever feel victimized in a relationship, because that can happen, then you can talk about it just to name the possibility is I think, you know, just a powerful way to build trust and connection. Right. I absolutely think we should bring it up. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe if you have any standout experiences where you felt particularly supported or particularly not supported uh, in in your supervision or even just like peer consultation, I think would be helpful. Yeah. um, Speaking to other clinicians who have been through similar experiences were very helpful in hearing about different ways that they handled the situation. Um, I think was awesome speaking to people who've also just had, you know, years of experience, right? Where you you feel like, oh, this person's kind of been through it all, you know, and just kind of learning from their wealth of knowledge. I think those were all very positive experiences. Um, And at a few of my facilities, when I was in the prison system, we had a a tight knit group of friends where we were all clinicians and we just became really close. And that was, 
I almost enjoyed that better than a supervisor supervisee relationship because it was a large support system. So I would encourage clinicians to develop that support system, someone that you can have consultations with and bounce things off of, because I found that extremely helpful, you know, to get it out. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of brings me to um, what I feel like is a really good example of what not to do. Right. Uh, So again, looking for kind of personal stories, the first post that popped up uh, when I was just doing like a Google search for, I forget what keywords I was using, but it was like inappropriate behavior counseling relationship. I mean, of course, most of that is directed at therapists. Please don't have sex with your clients. Like, sure, that's what shows up. But the first post that actually related to the client being the or the counselor rather being the recipient was um, from mastersofcounseling.org. Uh, which was basically a masterclass in victim blaming. Um, And I quote, it's best not to react strongly. Try not to blush or become flustered. Dress conservatively, no low cut blouses, tight clothing or short skirts. Heels and makeup are fine. As long as you don't look like you're going out for the evening and watch yourself when you lean over to pull a file out, do this in front of a mirror before you leave to ensure clients don't see too much of you. That's disgusting. That's gross. Yeah, right? that's disgusting. I actually stumbled upon that. That's funny you mentioned it when I was trying to find some research articles, like if I was going to quote any research. And um, I actually showed that to my partner and we were both like, that's really cringy. I can't believe someone actually wrote that. Um, and that, again, goes back to me saying that it is not your fault if your client exhibits these behaviors. I have worked with people whether inside the prison or not, I could have talked to them on the phone and then they would have said something sexually inappropriate. So they're not even seeing what I'm wearing. So I just can't even believe that was brought up. Um, So I just think that's important. It's not your fault and you're not a robot. You know, if you do have a strong reaction and you freak out and run out the room, then that's how you react, right? You might have to come back and say, okay, I you know, reacted the way I did, but I found that very, you know, inappropriate or offensive. You know, this is a professional relationship and I wouldn't treat you that way. So I want you to treat me with respect as well. I mean, just the, even the thought that I might be able to control whether or not I'm blushing. Right. Like if, if I could control all of my autonomic nervous responses, I feel like I would be in a very different place in my life. Oh yeah. Superhero. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, And I think that's important still to hear. I mean, for as outrageous as that sounds, I think to us, um, I feel like that could easily be a response that a counselor gets from someone uh, if they're seeking support. So just knowing that like, that's not acceptable. I mean, hopefully we're beyond that, I think in this day and age, but uh, yeah, that's just not okay. Absolutely. And I want to, also bring up what just came to my mind. Um, a sex addiction is not an excuse, right? It's, it's not an excuse. Um, you know, there are going to be things where we can rationalize why clients behaving that way. And again, I I think I've mentioned some of those, right? Are, are they psychotic or manic, right? Did my patient not take their meds today? You know, um, cause we know if you have bipolar disorder and you're having a manic episode, you know, you might be more promiscuous and you would be when you're not manic. Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, dementia, TBIs, right, where you do have those impulses or the decision making is kind of blunted there or impacted. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's not an excuse. Right. And yeah. I, I mean, I think what I'm taking away from from your narrative here is that even if you do know the why, you still set the boundary. Absolutely. You know, it, and knowing the why just helps you to be more effective in responding. It's not a reason to ignore it. Absolutely. Yeah, gosh, that feels like such an important piece um, for folks. Because I think that's also one of my own natural responses that I think I've mostly kind of worked through as a human, which is that I don't need to know the why. I just need to know the what. And if the what isn't okay, then here we are. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, so let's maybe think, uh, and turn toward self-care, you know, what were some of the go-to strategies that really, uh, helped you through what, I mean, research suggests is one of the most kind of burnout inducing situations is to be working with folks who, you know, are sex offenders. Yes. And in general, right? I feel like if you're having a client who has experienced transference towards you and you've been experiencing, you know, some inappropriate things and you decided to move forward, which is okay, right? And you felt comfortable continuing to work with that client. I feel like if you don't have some sort of outlet, right? We're all therapists, have some coping skills, you know? Um, sure. <laughs> and again, the support system, seek support, reach out to your supervisor, reach out for consultation, um, you know, reach out to HR, right? If you work for a, a larger, a larger group, um, just for guidelines or policies for how you might need to be handling it, right? Um, I, I do think that's important. I think coping skills are going to be the biggest thing, but that's the the therapist coming out in me. Um, yeah, because it absolutely can impact your job satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Did, was there ever a point where you felt yourself experiencing burnout in in the prison setting? Absolutely. I mean, I started at the women's prison. I went to a male facility, I came back to a female facility, ended up going to another, you know, male prison, I, I kind of bounced around. And I do think that was helpful to get a change of scenery and to work with different populations, different custody levels, um, so that I didn't completely experience. What were some of the indicators for you that you were either approaching burnout or having, you know, empathy fatigue? Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely. That's one of them, right. Where I felt like I was becoming a little bit jaded, you know, um, dreading going into work or sitting in my car, just going, hush, I do not want to walk in today. Yeah. Right. I don't like feeling like that. Um, I don't think anyone does. And when I first started the job, I didn't feel like that. So I think that was looking at it, um, in a good way where I kind of realized I, I need to move on to something different or I need to to do something different, even if that's starting to work in a different part of the, the, you know, the prison facility or in a different section of the nursing home, right? Maybe I'm not going to work on the, you know, the memory care unit. Maybe I'm going to go work in admissions or, yeah, I think those are good examples, right? Bounce around, get something different, um, but also make sure you're taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds like such good advice in terms of being flexible, you know, especially, I mean, just as you named in the beginning, you know, that you had a real kind of tender 
place in your heart, it sounds like, for working with folks who are particularly vulnerable. Yes. So I think it can just be really sad. It can be such, I think, a a grief-inducing space when we realize that we can't necessarily continue to work in the same way um, because it's just taken too much of a toll. So I think that's a great example of how that doesn't mean you necessarily have to like go get an engineering degree. You can just find a different space within the same, um, you know, institution or population that's maybe a little easier. Absolutely. And, you know, I always saw myself retiring with um, the Department of Public Safety. I believe that they switched back to Department of Corrections now. But after seven years, you know, I made the decision to change. And I felt like I was having a breakup. You know, it's it's hard to to make a change sometimes. But I know that that was for the benefit of my clients. And I know that eventually I'll probably find my way back to the mm. prison system because I, I loved that job. But at the end, I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I knew that it was time to move on to something different. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you also just bring a lot of self-awareness to, um, you know, not just your work with your clients, but also just like your connection to the work that you're doing and the impact that it's having on you. And I think it's easy, I guess, to get just caught up in doing the thing and not really checking in with ourselves. Right. Do you have particular recommendations, things that helped you stay connected to yourself so that you were aware when you were starting to feel differently about the work? I think one of the things that I had to figure out very quickly was to leave my work at work. Mm. And that's not always easy for us, especially now. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from my house right now, you know, so it's not always easy to make that separation. Um, but if you can, now that I'm, you know, doing outpatient private practice, my work is upstairs and that's where I leave it. Mm. Right. I try to be mindful about, you know, not constantly checking emails, but just trying to have that separation um, where I'm not going to burn myself out. Right. Where I can dedicate myself to myself sometimes, you know, or my family and have that time to do things that I enjoy. Um to be able to practice self-care. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I've found important. So it might not necessarily be a specific strategy, but that's that's what I've done that's worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like that would be really impactful, you know. Is, I mean, especially since I could see how working in um, a prison system where you are kind of uniquely exposed to Um, I mean, both types of pain, right? The pain of this person really didn't do anything awful and their lives are going to be so negatively impacted, likely. Yes. Paired with this person did something incredibly awful. So you're just aware of just injustice and pain on so many different levels. Like, I feel like that would be an easy thing to just really start to color how you see the world, you know, to just see that pain everywhere, which. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to see things as they are, and that can take a real toll if you're predominantly seeing the pain and suffering and negative aspects of it all. Absolutely. And another thing that's come to mind is if you need a day, take it, take it off. We had a saying, um, this is, I would say, prison system specific, but it was, you know, leave your hate at the gate, right? Mm. And that was just a saying for 
not necessarily, you know, hate for people who's inside. I don't want people to take it like that. But whatever you're experiencing outside does not come inside the gate once you walk through. And that is important because we did have people who were predatory that if they could tell think that whether they were, you know, they would just look at you. I mean, that was their job is to read people, right? Mm -hmm. They could tell if someone's going through a divorce or someone just lost a parent or whatever, you know, because we're not robots, right? So if you're feeling like that, if something has happened, or even if you're just having a hard day, I think that's important for us to recognize because our patients are going to be able to tell and we don't want that to impact our patients and our sessions. And sorry, you'll see, I typically use the term patient just because of the facilities I work in instead of client. I haven't quite got used to that yet. No, I I get it. That's (laughs) a tough transition for sure. Well, is there anything else that you would identify as um, either being helpful in coping or strategies, techniques, approaches that have helped you navigate difficult encounters? Yes, um, especially transitioning to not working in a prison, right? An outpatient, um, setting boundaries right out the gate. When people call me and they want to see me for therapy or want to come in for an evaluation, whatever it is, and they start talking on the phone, right? About everything. While it's really important to have that consultation to see if you're a good fit, some of it needs to, to wait for therapy as well. So knowing when to set those boundaries and say, I, you know, I can absolutely help you. Let me get your contact information so we can move forward, but not having, you know, that additional you know, conversation on the phone, right? So just setting that boundary there. And I think that establishes like, it's not a friendship, it is going to be a relationship. Um, So I think that's a good place to start. If you are someone who has experienced a client being sexually inappropriate, and you do feel you can continue to move forward without bias, without resentment, I think it's important to understand there are safety implications, right? Depending on the severity of the inappropriateness. Mm. Um, If it was a client who did something like expose themselves to you, because I have heard of that happening in outpatient practice. If you work in a setting where there are multiple people working, then that would be a good time to schedule that patient or that client, excuse me, don't schedule them at the end of the day when other people are going home, right? Make sure there are other people around where you're not alone. Um, or you could transition to virtual care and something as simple as asking your client to slide back where you can see them from the waist up. And if they have a problem doing that, then you'll say, okay, well, this happened last session. That's unacceptable and inappropriate. So this is why I'm now asking you to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I think that would be a good way to kind of approach those situations. Um, some other suggestions that we found helpful, me and my colleagues, um, let's say if it was a a male client who was behaving inappropriately toward a, you know, person who identifies as female, if you needed to terminate therapy, we would refer them to a male identified therapist. And it seemed like the problems would drastically decrease, if not completely (laughs) disappear. Mm -hmm. So I think that could be helpful, you know, so if you're a male therapist and you have, you know, someone who identifies as female being inappropriate or someone who identifies as male being inappropriate, referring them out to the opposite, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think could be 
helpful. It proved helpful um, in the past. Keep a record. Um, and then we have to think about if we are referring out a patient who or a client who has been behaving like that, do we let the person know who we're referring them to? Right. Do we ask the client to sign a waiver? Hey, I think this is important that your new therapist knows why we terminated therapy. Mm-hmm. Will you assign this release of information so I can share that with them? Because I do think it's something that you need to work on. Those are hard conversations to have. But I do think that it, w- it would be important for someone who's doing treatment with them to know. Two things show up. So I, the second thing, but maybe mm-hmm. the thing that'll go first, um, is how do you prepare yourself to have those difficult conversations? You know, there's we're all going to have different personalities, right? So I do have a more blunt personality. So I've found that to be a little bit easier maybe than my colleagues um, who aren't as just straightforward or who are maybe a little bit more introverted or just avoid conflict in general. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily like conflict. I think experience, you know, having to have that conversation multiple times, um, speaking to your supervisor, right? There are different ways to say things. And I'm sure there are other people who are a lot more experienced than I am that could, you know, have a lot more to add to this conversation on different ways to handle it. So bounce it off of different colleagues, right? How can I handle this? And practice, you know, practice saying it in your head. So when you do see your client again, you feel prepared and confident and what you're going to say. And I know sometimes we can think about ways, you know, of how they would respond and how we respond. Try not to let that take up all of your time, right? Because we're talking about not letting yourself burn out. But I do think that is a good way to build up confidence to approach that conversation um, in the future with your client. And I feel like you're just such a great model of, because as you describe yourself as blunt and straightforward, it's like, okay, I mean, I guess I can hear that, but you also sound really warm and engaging. So it's yes. like, oh, okay, I can be straightforward and still, you know, not be a jerk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that comes to, you know, experiences where when someone was inappropriate, and I, I know I brought this up a little bit earlier, um, but I continue to see them. And we're, so we're going to work on that. If you did that, you know, in public or, you know, at your job, you could have had charges, you know, you could have had gone to prison, right? Became a sex offender, you know, especially if I was working in the prison with someone who did not have that label, mm-hmm. right? That's very serious what you did. And you cannot do that. It's just because you're in a prison that does not make it okay, right? Mm-hmm. Or just because you're in my office does not mean the law disappears. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's important for you as my client to understand if you do that, there are very serious consequences that come along with that. And if you continue to exhibit that behavior, I might have to report you, right? Or I will. Um, Yeah, I I think that's important. But I mean, of course, most of the time we are warm and engaging, but I do think there is a time where we have to be firm. And if we're not, they might not take us seriously. The second thing that showed up was, I mean, because we've, I think, understandably um, been having a pretty gendered conversation in a binary kind of way. Yes. And um, 
thinking too about folks who are male conditioned. So, you know, maybe they're not male identifying, maybe Mm -hmm. they are, but they, you know, are at least coded as male, just thinking about the unique challenges they might face too in experiencing, um, you know, something that comes to mind is like, let's say you have a client who's engaging in quote unquote locker room talk. Um, it's still okay to feel some kind of way about that, to yes. set a boundary and to set a boundary, not just for, you know, the people who might be negatively impacted on the outside by that kind of behavior, but to set a boundary for yourself. Um, Cause I think a lot of male conditioned folks, especially when it comes to other sort of uh, sexual issues, right? Whether it's sexual assault, um, whether it's sex trafficking, male conditioned folks are so much more vulnerable in a lot of ways because they are taught that that should not happen to them. Yes. Because, you know, that it's evidence that they're weak or, you know, less than in some capacity. So without having either the lived experience or the research to lean on, it feels like just kind of a public service announcement that, you know, if if you're not a female and this happens to you, you still need to process it. Absolutely. So this, you know, everything we're talking about applies to everyone. Um, And when I was in, when I worked in the women's prison, I actually felt like the clients there got away with it more Mm. than the clients at the male prison, right? If it was a, you know, female identifying client saying something to, you know, someone who identifies as male as an officer, it wouldn't always be taken as seriously. Or, you know, maybe the male officer wouldn't feel as comfortable reporting that. I don't know. Um, but I I do know that it was not taken as seriously. And I don't know if that's because people think that women can't be violent. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I can get into a whole nother topic there where sometimes I felt more comfortable working in a male facility than a female facility because most people there have a set of values where they would not hit someone who is perceived as a female. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we go work in a women's prison, it's kind of like a free for all. <laughs> you know? Right. Understandable. So, um, you know, that I could get on a whole different subject there, but no, it can happen to you. And I do think that everything else that we've talked about today is just as relevant and applicable to everyone. Well, Amber, I am very grateful for your time today. This has just been such a great conversation. I feel like a very enlightening conversation for me. Uh, and one that I really haven't heard people talk very specifically about. So I'm hopeful that this, you know, will be something that folks can really get some new and relevant um, help from. So thank you so much. No, thank you. And because of the posts that I saw, I never even realized this might be a skill set that I possess. I, you know, I, I've been through it many times, but I never realized that about myself. So thank you. Well, when you're ready to develop a course, I'm ready to sign up for it. So I hear you. Go for it. That does it for our show today, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you are a counselor or social worker, psychologist or other helper or healer and would like some continuing education credit for listening to this episode, then head over to beyondtherapy.thinkific.com where you can access all of our continuing education products for just $34 a year, if you can believe it. We've got uh, over 25 hours now of content. 
Uh, you can also follow us on Beyond Therapy Podcast uh, on Instagram and Facebook, and we can continue the conversation there. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.